BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And of course, that's the scene where she has the nosebleed. So, which was interesting because <laughs> we did only have one dress. So normally when you have blood on set, you always have a backup just in case it goes very wrong. And uh, <laughs> I can remember saying to Johnny just before they started, they turned over, he had a handkerchief. I said, this is your handkerchief. Make sure you get it. <laughs> Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's Editor-in-Chief, Patrick Gomez, and today we'll be hearing from six-time Oscar nominee Alexandra Byrne, who is currently nominated for her work as costume designer of Emma. But first, we are still basking in the glow of what was perhaps the most enjoyable of the pandemic-era award shows, at least for those of us covering it in real time in breaking news land. Um, I'm talking about the 2021 SAG Awards, uh, and to break down what worked and what didn't, as well as our thoughts on the big winners of the night, we are joined by the AV Club's senior writer, Katie Reif. Thanks for joining, Katie. Hi, good to be back. <laughs> well, thank you for being here today, and thank you for being on Sunday evening with me, uh, covering the SAG Awards for the AV Club, uh, getting up all the winners, and you and I got to kind of chat back and forth over Slack throughout the yeah. evening of our favorite moments, and I thought it would be great to have you on here to kind of do it all over again, but in real time. Yeah, I got to agree with what you said up top, like, definitely in terms of coverage, this was like the most enjoyable pandemic era awards show I've seen. It was more fun to watch too than the Golden Globes, I thought. Yeah, because I think, you know, obviously, if you're not in person, we're losing the magic that you get of like cutting to a table and seeing Mm -hmm. who's sitting with who or who runs over to someone's table during a commercial break and that kind of stuff. And if you're not having that, you know, why bother with the, I understand that people want it to be a secret and a surprise, but none of these were leaked ahead of time, at least as far as Mm. I saw online. You know, I don't, I don't know why you can't pre-tape these things and cut out the fat and, and really keep the surprise moments. Cause I really did think that it was a little bit of the best of both worlds because they, it was live to tape. So you still saw people get shocked when they heard that they were the winner. You know, it wasn't like when people have to you know, the Emmys had a few categories that pre-taped announcements uh, if they weren't going to be able to be there, kind of like a, you know, mm-hmm. sending a note in advance uh, in an in-person event kind of thing. And there you lose the magic because it's just like, it's something they probably recorded six or seven times so they got it perfect in their apartment. Here, you got people stumbling over their words or being shocked or Viola Davis falling out of her chair. You know, you got all of those really fun tidbits and you still got to have the interaction that they tried for at the Globes with like people randomly in a shot uh, on a Zoom thing. But because they pre-recorded it and had time to set up the tech and really explain to people what was going on, because I think part of the problem with Globes was that I don't think people realized who they were on with and if they should talk or not talk. Here, everyone seemed to understand what was going on when you had these like Zoom rooms uh, that just happened to have people with a lot more expensive furniture in the background than our office calls. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Yeah, you get to see what the what the Levy family's living room looks like, which is I kind of like that aspect of these Zoom things. It's just although I think a lot of them get rentals, they get Airbnbs or hotel rooms. I think a lot of them aren't at their house. Oh, yeah, I think so as well. I mean, it's set up with the best internet and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure they do that as well. But you still get the insights. My favorite, though, was of all those was the Parks and Rec reunion special, Mm -hmm. um, where you got to see Retta's closet and know that that was actually Retta's closet. Like, I thought that was was amazing. Amazing. Um, But no, I will say, I will share one of my favorite moments of the evening, and I'd love to hear if you have one, Katie. Um, But I loved, um, it was a surprise for you and I were so ecstatic when it happened because for the most part, all the winners pretty much aligned with Golden Globes if that Mm -hmm. was an option. There were a few... There were a few options, like you pointed out um, in the category that I'm going to mention. Um, Jodie Foster won for supporting female role in a film uh, at the Globe. She wasn't even nominated here. Uh, and the trophy went to Yoo Jung-yoon from Minari, yes. um, who just was so endearing in her speech. And like to see when she was um, checking if her English was correct or at least close to correct. And everyone was like giving her thumbs up and okay. So- like I thought that was like the most adorable moment of yes. the whole thing. Um, yes. And that was really fun because, again, that's not something you necessarily would have seen uh, if people had been in person because they wouldn't have had time to cut to those cutaways. But we got in real time everyone on those on their Zoom screens, like egging her on and, and like giving her giving her support, which was which was so, so sweet. Yeah, I agree with what you said that I felt like this ceremony didn't have the chaos. <laughs> the Golden Globes were like low-key chaotic. No one seemed to know what was going on. And there were all those chaotic award speeches. Like, I thought it was very funny that Jason Sudeikis and Catherine O'Hara, who both, you know, either weren't expecting to win or tried a bit when they won their Globes, they both gave very prepared speeches at the SAGs where they were like, well, I'm not going to do that again. So I thought that was very funny. But it did seem like everyone was on the same page with this one. Like, everyone knew what was happening. Maybe people are just getting used to it because they've done it a few times now. But I, I thought that they they had it a lot be- better together in that aspect. Yeah, I will say that um, I have to imagine because if you notice, like Dan Levy is you wearing something different in his in some of the things and some and a different thing in other things, and so is. I think I <laughs> think well, yeah, it. one. <laughs> One, yes, of course he is. But two, I would imagine that they did it in like blocks mm. um, where they had time to get all of, because if you noticed it was, it was, because at first I was like, why are there random people on speeches? But then I noticed if it was like the best actor category, they didn't have all of them, but some of the other faces would be the best actress. Like they always were like lumped together with like oh. their, their counterpart, which it took me a while to figure that out. But what I'm imagining is they would have like basically like at noon on on Friday or whatever they recorded this at noon, like all the people in these two categories are going to sign on and we're going to have 30 minutes to to announce the winners there. And then at 1230, like these people. So I feel like they had time to get everyone on, figure out the tech things. I've done a Zoom panel with the Levies, well, actually with the whole Shit's Creek cast and getting it's a good thing that Dan and Eugene were together because getting Eugene set up on tech <laughs> can take a long time. <laughs> oh, my God, that's. Um, so on brand. Yes, very on brand. Um, uh, but uh, so I have a feeling they had time to set up and make sure people didn't have tech issues and walk mm. them through what was going to happen. It, it seemed a lot more put together. But that being said, the parts that they really pre-taped, uh, which were the kind of more glossy uh, sending a film crew or at least sending a camera and lighting kits to a home, 
uh, I, th- I thought was really fun to get to hear those stories from Helen Mirren and Dan Levy and, uh, you know, all of those people, Mindy Kaling, uh, Common had a really weird thing where he wants to smell everyone again, which I thought was <laughs> a weird <laughs> thing weird. to include. Um, I thought those worked really well, too. Uh, they didn't feel overused. And even though it was the same core set of people that kind of came throughout the show to give their anecdotes, um, they felt new and exciting. And I, I thought it was a really great selection of talent to include as part of those. Yeah, I actually think that that's something that they should do in more of these award shows. I thought it was a great alternative to the kind of like, uh, you know, the monologues and the onstage skits and stuff like that. I thought it was a really good alternative to that. And some of the stuff they were saying, like, was really, really very charming. You know, like Rita Moreno had a lot of uh, uh, fun stuff to add. Um, and as you, everybody you mentioned, some of them are more uh, comedy people than others. But, you know, even like uh, Ethan Hawke or Sterling K. Brown weren't necessarily funny guys. They had like funny anecdotes to tell. But my favorite of those interview segments was Helen Mirren, who apparently has just been out in the woods staring bears in the eye since quarantine. Yeah, like began. Helen, we Helen, <laughs> we need you, to, Helen, we need you to like live to be 155. So um, <laughs> maybe don't go play with bears. Um, she but that does was not so fun. Fear bears does not fear bear. Although if I was Helen Mirren, I don't think there'd be anything that I feared either. So I guess I'll give that to her. Um, but I loved, I loved the stories that we got about them all trying to work, you know, them having technical difficulties just like us. Um, mm-hmm. Lily Collins's anecdote about trying to do her callbacks for, for Mank and having oh, David Fincher yeah. give feedback, but it freeze every time that he was trying to give her feedback. So she'd do, she'd do it. And then he'd be like, great, let's do it one more time and just try. And then he would freeze and she'd be like, okay, now go. And she would just have to go and pretend that she knew what he was saying. Yeah, she heard like, the note. <laughs> clearly, clearly it worked. Um, but uh, I thought that that was hilarious. Yeah, I I like the stuff of them talking about the art of acting, I think, more than the quarantine kind of stuff. Just because, you know, the quarantine kind of stuff, it, y- y- a lot of people talk about it because it's what's going on. But them talking about like, their the the special skills section of their resume and like terrible old headshots and stuff like that i thought that was very like charming and humanizing and i'd like to see more of that kind of stuff in awards shows yeah i i agree i agree um one of the things i thought was weird uh obviously we had the the opening and closing moments were uh ted lasso Mm -hmm. skits which you know was a little interesting to for them to choose to highlight one show over all the others um yeah uh, particularly, I mean, it was nominated for actor and series, but it wasn't like, it didn't sweep the nominations in any sort of way that like made it feel special beyond it just being a show that people enjoy. So I thought that that was a little bit of a weird choice, but at least made more sense to me that we had a, sh- we had an opening and closing bit. Um, it was a little more odd to see Mary Steenburgen and Ted Danson pop in in the middle with their pre-recorded skit that was <laughs> quote unquote their home that was most clearly the set of uh, Mary Steenburgen's show, uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Okay, I thought that. I was like, I feel like I've seen this quote-unquote house somewhere before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it's that house. <laughs> I've definitely seen it somewhere before, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, those those struck me a little odd, but uh, I didn't hate them. It just, like, I, I didn't feel that they were maybe necessary. No, I, uh, when they opened with the Ted Lasso sketch, I thought, oh, okay, so are all the best comedy series nominees going to get a sketch in the show? But it, that didn't happen. And I, and I thought that was kind of odd. Like, yeah, why that yeah. one? Like you were saying. 
now you made me excited for the idea that that would have happened and we could have gotten the roses and uh, know. you know all the other fun. comedy shows together. That would have been really fun. Call me sick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Call us up next time. Um, but no, let's talk a little bit about um, a little bit about the winners. Obviously, uh, we had you on last episode to discuss uh, who we thought would win, and for the most part, it aligned with a lot of our thinking. Um, you know, I think we mentioned Yu Jung Yoon's win, which was a little bit of a, not even a surprise, but just unexpected based on yeah. um, kind of buzz that we've been hearing, but is, is super exciting. Deserved. Very much deserved. I think it's important to underline the difference between unexpected and unearned. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes, very much so. You know, it maybe wasn't what we were hearing. There wasn't maybe a ton of buzz behind it, but it's totally, it's not a, it's not a shocking win in the sense that, uh, like, you know, undeserving. A hundred percent. Very important to underline that. We had Daniel Kaluuya win for, um, supporting male actor for Judas and the Black Messiah, which, you know, I think we thought was, was a, a good choice there in terms of a front runner. So, so no huge surprise there. Uh, I will say that um, Danette Chavez, our TV editor, we had on the episode before, there's a lot of the TV categories that we had pegged correctly, including um, she finally just admitted that even though she didn't necessarily agree with it, uh, that Mark Ruffalo, after winning the Globe and the Emmy, um, it seemed like he was going to complete the trifecta, and he most (laughs) certainly did. Um, So so good on them. Um, And then we had um, Chadwick Boseman win for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Mm -hmm. We were a little worried, or at least I was a little worried, that perhaps because he was nominated in supporting as well that there would be a weird split but here we saw him win um which we both had said at the time very well deserved he has so many standout moments there the one that was um again not because it was undeserving but a little bit of a surprise was viola davis's win at least in my book you had her pegged as more of a front runner when we chatted last last episode what were your thoughts there yeah i thought of her as a front runner. honestly my biggest surprise given that viola davis and chadwick boseman won for a uh, male and female leading actor i'm surprised ma rainey didn't win outstanding performance by a cast that seemed it odd isn't to me. interesting yeah especially given the fact that they had you know chicago seven didn't have lead actor or actress nominees yeah. even, but it did have uh, a nominee in Sasha Baron Cohen for supporting actor, and he didn't get that even. So, you know, it's like they didn't even nomin- uh, give this film awards elsewhere when they could, uh, and yet it, it won here. Of course, obviously, you know, you can look at each category with completely fresh eyes, so I'm not saying that, sure. like, something weird happened but it was it was a bit surprising that um unlike uh at the oscars where i think a lot of people can be like well if it wins screenplay and editing and supporting actress and um directing then it's a shoe and that it's definitely gonna win oscar for best picture that makes sense because best picture takes into account all those small aspects right here at the sag awards they're only or at least they're only supposed to be looking at the performances and really trying to distill it down to that. And so here, it does make a lot more sense for me um, when someone says, like you did, well, if they won actor and actress, like it makes sense that it would win Best Picture or Outstanding Performance by a Cast, as it's phrased here. Yeah, um, I uh, right. I kind of, I, I asked you that on Slack. I said, do you think Ma Rainey's going to win the big award? Because it's, you know, picking up all these um, individual awards. But you know, this this goes back to something we talked about last time I was on was the idea of that there really isn't a main lead in mm-hmm. the Trial of the Chicago 7. Like in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, you can kind of pull out those two characters, Bela Davis and Chadwick Boseman's characters, and call them the leads. 
but yeah. w- it's really hard to pull one out in Chicago seven. Yeah. Um, you know, I could have, I, I think all the nominated, again, the nominations uh, for Outstanding Performance by a cast were Defy Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Minari, One Night in Miami, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. I could have seen it going to any of these. They're all fantastic Absolutely. ensemble pieces. But I, I had said, even when we chatted, that I wasn't necessarily certain that particularly Viola Davis was going to win for lead, but uh, lead actress. But I did think that it had a strong chance of winning even without that. So I was even more surprised just because I kind of already saw being a front runner without those wins and yeah. so i thought that was really going to put it over the edge um but i will say you know take a moment for a shameless plug for our other podcast uh that katie you are a co-host of which is film club which you co-host yes. with our film editor a.a a. dowd you all are spending this past week and, and the future weeks heading up to the oscars discussing the major categories there yes, so if you enjoy listening to av club staffers discussing award shows and nominations and who we think will win you certainly should also be listening to to film club as it heads up into the Oscars later this month. But I will I will ask you here, Katie, as a little bit of a tease, do you think that these SAG wins impact the Oscar race in any sort of big way? I think, well, because SAG is the overlap between the people who vote for the SAG Awards and the people who vote for the Oscars acting categories. Because, you know, the, the Oscars, you vote, like, in your area. Like, if you're an actor, you vote for the acting awards. Then everybody votes for Best Picture, which, which is how you can kind of do the math on Best Picture, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I would think that, yeah, yeah. I, and especially if someone wins a Golden Globe and a SAG, like, I would, like, Daniel Kaluuya, I would put my money on him for winning the Supporting Actor Oscar because he won both of those awards. Yeah, it'll be super interesting. That's what makes me excited about Yoo Jung Yoon's win here. Is yes. that does that does that elevate her into a little bit more of a front runner category over there, which is exciting. Um, clearly, she gives a very endearing speech, so we'll be excited to see that. As you and I were commenting while we were watching um, the SAG Awards, it was it was lovely to see Olivia Coleman um, participate in so much of the awards. I feel like they squeezed her into more categories than other people, just <laughs> because they know that she's just always good um, good. Award show fun. Um, she seems like an amiable person too. She seems oh, like somebody who goes with the flow. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I am excited to see what the Oscars do, and especially because they continue to change their idea of what the what the ceremony is going to look like in terms of yes. um, is it going to be all in person or now you can call in from Guam if you want. You know, like they, they're changing their their minds every every other day, um, which I don't envy their position. Of course, it's 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 probably uh, really a Herculean task to have to put together a show like this in an ever-evolving pandemic era uh, where the rules are changing for everyone um, every day. But just to bring up Yoo Jung Yoon one more time, you know, she's based in South Korea. So if you had to attend the Oscars in person, the odds of her coming were probably pretty low because international travel is still pretty dicey right now, you know? Like on a normal year, like everyone from Parasite flew out, but uh, it's she's a little bit older and she's you know in a whole other country and i'm not sure what the travel restrictions are like there but she might not even be able to come well and again it might be fine today and then not tomorrow so yeah. you know, it's it's all of that that that's really tough to navigate right now so i don't envy what they have to do but it does seem like the rules are changing if you haven't been following uh in the day-by-day evolution of their plan initially the academy was saying that Everyone had to be in person um, and they were going to, I believe, at one point have uh, bicoastal, similar to how the Grammys had it. 
um, was the next plan was, okay, not everyone has to be in LA, but even then it's like no zooming, everyone has to be in person. And now they've broadened it to that. They're going to have a place in London. That was going to be their answer by adding an international location. But now it just seems like they're going to go to everyone being able to zoom in as necessary. So, which I think is the right call for all the reasons we already discussed, but you know, it, it opens up to everyone being able to attend and I can't wait for people to be attending things in person again, but I'm glad that they're making it making it safe for everyone. Yeah, like, honestly, you know, say it's your first time being nominated for a big award like this. And normally you'd get to fly out and dress up and it'd be this big, exciting trip. And now you just kind of get dressed up and sit in front of your computer like you do all the time. It's got to be a little bit deflating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most definitely. I mean, I feel, I feel, but like you said, particularly for like the younger, or not even the younger, but the first time nominees or the people really having a moment. Like I think about Anya Taylor Joy winning the Globe and now the SAG Award. She'd be having such a bigger moment if she was like making the splashes on a red carpet and mm-hmm. getting to stand in front of a stage and all that kind of stuff. And she's still like bringing out the fashion and and like having these like very endearing speeches. Um, but it just is not playing the same as it would if she was really getting to enjoy her, like, red carpet moment in the spotlight. You know, I, I think, I, I feel for people like this, or, or Maria Bakalova, you know, mm-hmm. I think that there'd be a lot more opportunity for her to be doing red carpet press and all that kind of stuff. And, like, just elevating her star even larger than these nominations are elevating her. So it, it's sad that they don't get that same opportunity, but... You know, hopefully uh, they'll maybe do a situation where they you get an automatic invite uh, if you were a nominee from this year. Uh, I would next hope year. so. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, maybe we'll see Maria Bakalova back in the awards conversation again, but we'll definitely see Anya Taylor Joy at, at these events again in the future, I think. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> well, we will also see you, Katie, continuing to cover all these award shows Yay. on avclub.com. I appreciate your work on the SAG night. I know we're all resting up and gearing up for Academy Awards evening, and we will certainly have you back on here to discuss all of that. But as I mentioned, definitely check out Katie's podcast with A.A. Dowd, um, the AV Club's film club. Our new episodes, of course, of Push the Envelope come out on Thursdays. Episodes of Film Club come out on Fridays. So subscribe to that if you don't already to check out what they have to say about the upcoming Oscars. We will continue to chat about that here, as we will do in just a moment, when we hear from, again, six-time Oscar nominee Alexandra Byrne, who is currently nominated for her work as the costume designer on Emma. Our very own Mara Eakin recently sat down with Alexandra to discuss her work on Emma and what it's like to put together uh, the costumes for a movie with such a peculiar, and I use that in the best way possible, peculiar and interesting tone as Emma. I thought maybe we could start just by talking about Emma. Like, how did you sort of envision Emma, the character? Like, how did you take her from page to screen and work with Autumn to sort of put her together? Um, I started by reading the novel and reading the script and talking to Autumn and discovering the story that she wanted to tell. And what was clear is that uh, Autumn loves clothes. She loves clothes. She loves fashion. She loves fabric. She loves color. So that was the joy. And... And so I, I knew in talking to her, I knew exactly what she wanted because this period is really, really interesting because it was the beginning of women's fashion journals. And also it's not so far back in history that the museums don't have original pieces of clothing. So the combination is, it's the first time you really get that combination of being able to see 
what the fashion plates and the fashion communication was for the period and put it next to the reality. It's a bit like us looking at copies of Vogue and then um, going into somebody's wardrobe and seeing what it really was. And what struck me about that research is that the the fashion plates are are fabulous, but where they were done, they were engravings that were hand-colored. And you come, you can come across the same engraving, which has been colored five different ways, which I love because it's a bit like kind of, you know, a coloring book and how to sell the image. But then when you start to look at the clothes, you really understood that number one, they are all hand stitched. Mostly the women were making their own clothes, doing their own embroidery, their own white work. Not the case for Emma because she was privileged and, and would use a seamstress. Um, and far too busy to spend her time sewing. I think the amount of clothes she has, she'd just be sewing for the whole film. And I suspect she's probably not that good at sewing, actually. <laughs> um, but it was just really interesting to really understand that most of the fabrics were very, very lightweight, that the clothes were really put together in quite a spontaneous way. They didn't have machines, so nothing was overlocked or, or turned or bagged out. It's just whip-stitched on the back. Quite often they were pieces from an earlier period that had been adapted to suit the fashion. So you really understood that it's not costume, it's clothes. And I, I came away from my research feeling that you could have shown the same fashion plate to 10 different women in a village or in a town, and you'd come up with 10 very different pieces of clothing because it depended on your money, your taste, your style, and your ability to sew and your your style, your kind of flourish with detail. It was all about trims and detail and, and flounces. So the clothes are very personal. And within that world, I thought, how do we make Emma look like the kind of the queen bee, the big fish in the small pond? And because the story takes place over a whole calendar year, I thought the way to do it would be to give Emma a, a, a complete working wardrobe for the year, but to be able to use that wardrobe so that she has the right piece of clothing for every time of the year, time of the day, occasion, and and what she wants to say about herself. So rather than that just being an endless costume after costume after costume, I gave her a seasonal palette for each season so that she dictated the change of season and as she dictates a lot. And then within that, it's a very, I think people quite often think of this period as just being, you know, a dress, you put on a dress and that's it. But actually the dress is built up of so many layers. So actually Emma only has three muslin dresses throughout the entire film, but they managed to look, I mean, make them look very different by the different colored petticoats underneath, the different little kind of infills and chemisettes, the different collars, the gloves, the jewelry, the bonnet, the spencers, the pelises, the boots, the shoes, you know, you can make it very different. And so it, what was interesting is that, you know, when you're filming, usually you get the actors ready to a certain kind of base level. Of course, it's in petticoats and the dresses are being prepped. And then the actors go and rehearse. And then when Anya came back, I could talk to her about the scene and, and how she felt what she wanted to show in the scene. And so we could kind of dress into that or out of that. We could kind of put together the finishing touches to to really kind of point the costume for the way the scene was playing so it was it was quite organic it was very busy but that's how we worked it and and autumn's the way autumn wanted the film to work is that she wanted the humor to come out of the reality of the situation so rather than imposing humor she wanted to know and understand all about the etiquette 
the social structure, the hierarchy, the fashion, the clothes, everything about the period, so that she could draw the humour out of that. So it was a very collaborative experience. It really was like dressing for Emma. It was like dressing for the moment, dressing for the day. <laughs> Uh, Autumn and I have mutual friends and I was at a wedding that she was at a few years ago, her whole family. And I remember being like, they are by far the best dressed people at this wedding. Like they look incredible. So I, I for sure know that she loves fashion and her. Yeah. And the bonnets too, quite often, you know, directors for this period, you can see them just (laughs) thinking, when can we get rid of the bonnet? When can we get the bonnet off? And Autumn was the opposite. She wanted, she wanted to know all about the different shapes of hats, the changing fashion, and and we we had bonnets and the top hats in rehearsal so that they became part of the language, you know, how a man wore his hat when he took it off, how he handled his hat. And again, for the women, I think it's very clear when Harriet, right at the end, when she kisses Mr. Martin, she's wearing a real kind of one of those real funnel bonnets, which makes the scene very funny because he has to go right into the bonnet <laughs> to get to kiss her. And it does change how you move your head. It's a bit like horse in blinkers. You can't see have no peripheral vision. So so Autumn wanted to use all that, as I said, to bring out the humor and to 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 kind of raise the stakes, as it were. Well, actually, let's talk a little bit about the hats. Like, what was the process of getting those hats made? Like, who, you know, did you have a, 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 a milliner you were working with or anything like that? Mm, several, because there are a lot. There are a lot of hats. So we we I can remember very clearly quite early on in the fitting process, I was already starting with the clothes with Anya, but we I knew that we we had a, a huge amount of hats and bonnets and, and things to work out. So we were fitting in conjunction with the clothes, but also we just had one Saturday morning where she came into the workroom. And again, the advantage of this period is that you can have existing stock from the costume houses. So you have pieces that you can try on. And I find that invaluable because it's it means you're open to the lucky accident you put something on that you didn't expect to work and you go oh that's interesting and I can take from that and very quickly you know the shapes that don't work so we just had a a Saturday morning where we sat and we tried on different hats and we just looked at them and um and once you get into that process it's very clear what works and what doesn't work again then working with Maurice about how the hair would work for each shape and then knowing how far you can push the lines and the balance um, and the colors and the feathers. You know, it's a, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. How did you define, I mean, um, like the friendship between the two young ladies? Well, there's, uh, I think it's a very contemporary, every age story. It's about two girls who are best friends and, they have different assets and different characters and different qualities. And it's that kind of that interplay between the two of them. Obviously, at the beginning, Emma has the upper hand and she takes Harriet as a kind of an occupational toy, you know, something that she's going to fill her time with. Um, but Harriet grows and she finds her way. So so I used colour and silhouette to kind of try and shadow their story and who was holding the power, who was confident, who was doing what. And it is that thing of, you know, I've got I've got two now grown up daughters and I can remember, you know, the hours waiting in top shop fitting rooms, which by then are communal fitting rooms where, you know, six of them are trying on clothes and 
you can see them watching each other dressing and gauging what works on the other person and trying that on and realizing it doesn't work on them. You know, it's just a kind of, it's a story about two young women and the interplay between them. And uh, it was great because uh, Anya and Mia uh, know each other very well. So there was a, a very kind of good relationship and a rapport between the two of them that that I could feed off. You could sort of see Harriet getting a little more confident fashion-wise and a little more like, well, if I buy this ribbon, I can use it, you know what I mean? Like over the course of the movie. Yeah, and she's kind of indulged by, you know, she she shadows Emma to begin with. And I I know it's kind of academic research that doesn't come across to the viewer, but I think I think everything sort of adds up to information. You know, she's wearing a bonnet that is a bit backdated that maybe Emma's had for a few years. And she said, oh, you can have this one, knowing that she's wearing the the best one because she's wearing the latest fashion. And Harriet's trimmings are always a little bit more mundane. You know, when she's in the haberdashers, she's she's debating over ribbons and doesn't have that confidence. So I just wanted to bring all that all that into it. And then there's a kind of, you know, as Harriet's confidence grows, then her her dresses are becoming a little bit more sophisticated. But she still doesn't have Emma's money. But she's beginning to find her own style and kind of. Um, just challenges Emma in her independence of style a little bit. I think the portrait when Emma dresses her up is a kind of turning point for her. Yeah. Um, how did you sort of define, um, I mean, here I have Knightley and... Um, Churchill, Frank Churchill. Yeah, Churchill, Frank Churchill. You know, how did you define them as individuals? Well, it's also, it's, you know, it's in the script and it's in the novel, but but also... You know, actors bring their own presence and they bring their thoughts and we work together and, and their different physicalities and proportions and coloring. So, so you're working with the actor and you're working with the character. Um, Johnny is nightly, you know, he's, he's part of the, the landed gentry. Uh, he has uh, a very kind of discreet, refined taste and style, but a kind of practicality. You know, he always walks over to Emma's house. He doesn't ride, he doesn't take his carriage, so he's quite modest. Frank Churchill is a bit flashier. He's a bit more full of himself. He's, you know, but he's also, you know, he's covering his tracks. So the whole story of, you know, he goes to London for a haircut, everybody's prepared to believe that. But actually, you know, he was using that as a cover. So so he's a player, you know, and I just wanted to bring that 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 spirit. You at the beginning of the movie, there's a a scene where Johnny, <laughs> where Knightley is getting dressed, and you also sort of see like how that whole process came together, like how they got dressed at the time, yeah, um, and yeah. stuff like that, which was interesting as well. If you're not, yeah, and that that came from autumn, you know. Again, you know, she was talking; she wanted to know what people's days were, you know, what what it was for a gentleman or for a farmer or for a squire. And I was explaining it to her and she said, she said, I want to see that. I want to see it. So we showed her with Johnny. We did a whole kind of dressing routine. And she said, I've never seen that before. I want that in my film. So, so that's where it came from. And I think it was great, actually. You know, it's, um, it's a bit of a turn up. You know, we see endless scenes of women dressing, don't we? So, exactly. so you know, sort of the men. Sort of off of like the female gaze. Now let's see the men dressing. Yeah. Um, you did have to dress two weddings in the movie, which is it's just a kind of a fun prospect. Well, the the two weddings are very different. I think you know the Emma's wedding is was 
actually quite challenging because of the nature of Emma. You know, it's a kind of it's an opportunity to do, you know, oh, here comes the bride and you know, the the dress steals the moment. And actually, because of Emma's journey that she's been on, I didn't I didn't want to do that. It's like it's the it's the culmination of her story. I didn't want it to all be about the dress. So I was trying to be um balanced, more minimal than you would expect, but very stylish. And I do actually I have to say, I think the 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 wedding bonnet that she's wearing is one of my favorite pieces in the film because it's actually it's made had a wonderful milliner at uh at Cosprop who made this and it's made from about four different pieces of of vintage crin which are kind of meshed together to look like they all belong and it's just um the shape and the proportion and the translucence of it and being able to dress in real flowers it was just um it was sort of like a halo, like a sort of an aura around okay. her. And I, I, um, I think it's just an amazing piece of work. It's like more ethereal, it feels. Yeah, yeah. And then, she, you know, she's just wearing like a, a nice day hat. <laughs> so it sort of shows. Yeah, her. I mean, it's a much more modest wedding. And she's, you know, the, really this point of the story is that um, she's been living with Emma and her closest friend and companion is is leaving for a new life so again it's about it's about her status and and moving on and um i wanted it to be simple relatively simple and appropriate appropriate to her you know weddings i think we all have images of you know weddings being weddings then we had very different custom to them it wasn't all about you know the great big taffeta dress it was it was a, a different event it was much more about, about the wedding breakfast and mm-hmm. and the, the celebrations and then bill nye that i decided with him you know he's he's a fussy he's a hypochondriac but he's a very caring man and against emma i wanted him to be incredibly stylish and sophisticated so we decided to, to play the opposite and to very much control the palette of his clothes so that everything is in kind of shades, shades of oatmeal and, and gray so that it's very, um, it's about silhouette and style. And he very much belongs at Hartfield so that he's got all the color of the, the interiors around him, but he's sort of, he's, he's bedded in with his screens and his particular chair. <laughs> He's all bundled. He's a little bit bundled up because he's always yeah. you know, yeah. catching a draft. Mrs. Elton is certainly a character. Um, she is. She's over the top, and although she claims not to be. What yeah. was fun about dressing her? Well, again, the, the counterpoint to Emma's fashion, taste, and style. I wanted her to be very much, um, she's competitive, and she's new money, and she's all about assertion. So, She's avidly reading the fashion magazines and not filtering what she reads. She's going for it at every stage. And again, you know, it was, it's clear in the scene when she has tea with Emma, it's about, you know, I was talking about working with Cave on the, the colors of the interiors of the room. You know, there's not just the play of how the colors relate to Emma as the kind of the pivotal character, but also who's at, who's at ease and who's at odds in their environment. So I could I could use Kay's color palette to again to counterpoint the clothes and and what's happening. Yeah, everyone's in these kind of like pastel sort of easy 
and she's in orange, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, really she's got the yeah. sharp collar. She's got yeah. the lace. Well, she just kind of jars with all the kind of, you know, the tea is all about uh, sugar dusted macaroons and cakes and confectionery and, and she's in orange. Yeah. She's wearing, she's the kind of person that's like, you know, take one thing off before you leave the house. Like she's not, she's wearing every trend at once. <laughs> she's wearing every trend at once and she always gets it just a little <laughs> bit wrong. It's just a little bit pushed and, and out of kilter within the village, really. Um, and then here's the pictures of Emma sort of later in the movie. I'm wondering if she had, you know, you mentioned that she had seasons, but I'm wondering if there was sort of like a, an arc to her, like once she sort of realizes she's in love with Knightley or whatever, like do her outfits change? Does she get more subdued? When you're doing period films, you, there's so much energy that goes into the interiors and conjuring the magic in the period. And quite often for the exteriors, it um, the moment you have green grass, you sort of lose the period and it goes very <laughs> modern and suburban or whatever. But Autumn chose incredible landscapes and countryside and and it, the we had amazing skies, we had wind, we had all that long grass with movement. So I really wanted to to try and make Emma work in her environment. You know, even when she's walking um, up with the goose to to apologise. Obviously, I wanted it to be more demure there, but certainly in the the sequence on the left with the the dress with the green, I knew that um, that was going to happen under the tree and there was this incredible sky and the wind and just the the interplay of greens and and making Emma feel kind of like a sort of small piece of calm in this quite tempestuous landscape. And of course that's the scene where she has the nosebleed. So which was interesting because <laughs> we did only have one dress. So normally when you have blood on set you you always have a backup just in case it goes very wrong. And uh, I can remember saying to Johnny just before they started, they turned over, he had a handkerchief. I said, this is your handkerchief. Make sure you get it. <laughs> we're gonna have that. I don't know what we're going to do. Um, maybe it's a good part to talk about her jewelry. Like, were these period pieces? Were these your creations? <laughs> no, we don't have the budget to be buying authentic um, 19th century. <laughs> no, I think, you know, it's... Um, I do research a period very, very clearly when I'm starting work on a period piece because I I need to know and understand the style of the period so that I can make choices to help tell the story. And I think, no, I do a lot of markets, a lot of car boot sales, antique dealers. You know, you just start to find an eye for what will work. And, And again, you know, it's about looking at it in the fitting and seeing what what works, what scale is right, what what balance is right. Um, and you just find your way. You know, the the cross that she's wearing on the right is actually that piece we had made. Um, and it's taken from a, a cross that Jane Austen had that her brother gave her and it's topaz. Mm-hmm. So that's that's based in a Austen reality. I guess we should touch on a little Jane Fairfax, Mrs. Bates, you know, you have the big collar. She's the woman of a certain woman of a certain age, I guess, of the era. Like mm. she grows into being an older, an older woman. And then Jane, I guess, a little less wealthy, maybe, maybe uh a little less wealthy, quite private. You know, she's she's covering her tracks, so a little bit more demure, wanting to kind of not not take the 
her life, really, um, other than when she plays the piano at the concert, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> no, I just wanted her to be, you know, she's sort of holding herself back. She's, she's covering mm-hmm. and doesn't want to draw attention too much. You know, she's not going to get drawn into the head-on competition of it all because she, she knows what's going on and doesn't want to blow her cover. And then by contrast, Mrs. Bates is like, she's a tall lady. She is, <laughs> she's, she talks quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> There's just always a little bit too much of her. It's a little bit too busy. And, you know, her, her mother was uh, married to the vicar, widowed. So they're on, you know, their income is greatly reduced and they're, they're, she is trying very hard to, to maintain her pride and her dignity in reduced circumstances. And I think that just makes her talk too much and be far too busy. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's a limited wardrobe that she, you know, she always, in most of the scenes of the summer, she has her coat. She's got her one coat and that's, that's her coat and it's always there. And the ties are a bit all over the place and, and her bonnet's not quite on straight and everything's just a little bit kind of, you know, not quite sorted out. <laughs> um, and then I guess, you know, you did a lot of, <laughs> a lot of servants, a lot of, you got these school girls. Like, was mm-hmm. there, you know, I assume, I don't know if you made all those costumes. Um, yeah, but no, we did. We did. Oh my goodness. The thing that we, you know, it, it's it's interesting. We did make them all, partly because I was trying to control the palette, mm-hmm. and and the period is, of my first film that I did was at Jane Austen in ninety five, I think, which mm-hmm. makes me feel old. But I did manage to find one dress from that from that film. But because the clothes are so fragile, they don't, you know, by the time they've done a film, they don't sit well on hangers in storage you know they just don't <laughs> last and also the pastels are not it's not my comfort zone working in pastels but the more I got into it the more I understood that I needed you know very much the the very particular shade of yellow to work with the particular shade of pink if I was going to do that so so the more you you get into a period and the more you start trying to tell the story you want to tell the more specific it all becomes the red capes are actually taken from it's an amazing uh, little book of watercolors by a lady called Diana Sperling, who who lived in a she was quite important in the village she lived in, and she did these really beautiful watercolors that are exactly of this period. And the red cape was the kind of the go-to practical outdoor garment. If you only had one one warm outdoor layer, it would probably be your red cape. And she does all these really beautiful sort of naive spirited watercolors of of life in the countryside and that's that's where the red capes came from and again you know knowing I wanted to do the red capes I wanted them all to be you know these girls have been at the school for different lengths of time they come from different backgrounds so all the reds are slightly different the capes are slightly different and I think that kind of detail just helps to bring a kind of a reality and credibility that you know, you're not really noticing, saying, oh, that one's different, that one's different. It just gives a, a layer of texture to to an image that you're trying to create. That's so new. I, I only noticed that now that you say it. I'm like, hers is shorter than that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a bit like, you know, we all, in England, we, you know, I grew up wearing school uniforms and everybody's school coat would be different because it yeah. was a hand down or it was new or your mum had bought it too big or, or you know, many things. 
So um, I wanted to get that quality. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Push the Envelope. You can find Emma streaming on HBO Max, and you can find me on social media at Patrick Gomez LA. We will be back next Thursday with an all-new episode heading into the final stretch ahead of the Academy Awards on April 25th. But until then, please remember to like and comment and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your audio offerings. We really do appreciate it. Until next week, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen. 